So this is the second in our series through Joseph's story. And I want to start with a question. What kind of monster are you? Doesn't take much to insult the whole room, does it? What kind of monster are you? Bear with me while I explain. This morning's Bible passage shows us the chaos of Joseph's family. And it all comes to a head. Hatred and jealousies that have been simmering boil over and great evil is unleashed. And as we go through this dark period of Joseph's life, it's all too easy for us to include that Joseph's brothers were monsters. They were just evil and they should be done away with. Yet the Bible challenges us with our dismissal. That passage in Romans chapter 3, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? I mean, that's what I'm going to ask today. Are we any better than Joseph's brothers? Not at all, says the Bible. We have already made the charge that the Jews and Gentiles are alike under sin. So what I'm asking is this. Are we any better than Joseph's brothers? Uh, Deep down, is there any difference? If we were in the exact same situation of any of those boys, brought up in the same family, would we have behaved better? And you could well have done, and good for you. But to help explore this, we're going to look at two well-known classical monsters that you've all heard of before. And then we're going to use these as a window of understanding into our own lives and the brothers. Firstly, are you more like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. (coughs) In this classic horror story, Dr. Jekyll wrestles with the good and the evil within himself. And so he goes to his lab and he concocts a potion that when he drinks, he hopes will mask the evil within him. But to his horror, when he takes the serum, he turns into the evil, remorseless, cruel Mr. Hyde, physically and within himself, and he, and he wrecks havoc. Now, when he comes to himself, when the potion wears out, Dr. Jekyll is drawn to this evil character. And he thinks by taking the potion now and again, he can enjoy being the wicked Mr. Hyde, while the respectable, well-loved Dr. Jekyll remains untarnished. However, as he indulges his Mr. Hyde side, the evil grows more and more powerful until it takes over the good Jekyll, even when he isn't taking the potion. So then, the first monster. Are we like Dr. Jekyll, who battles good and evil within? Second monster is Mary Shelley's The Frankenstein Monster. In her book, Dr. Victor Frankenstein creates life in the lab. Labouring for two years, he creates a creature out of materials sourced from the dissecting room and the slaughterhouse. However, when he succeeds, Victor is terrified of his creation and runs away while the monster escapes. Now, forget what you've seen in the movie adaptations, Mary Shelley's view of the monster was that he was created good. The monster was created as an innocent and it was the outside environment that made him go bad. 
that because he looked like a monster and he couldn't speak but grunted, because he walked awkwardly, he was shunned and driven away. And this is what created the monster. In fact, later on when uh, the monster meets his creator, the scientist, he says this. This is the words of Frankenstein's monster. I was benevolent and good. Misery made me a fiend. Make me happy and I shall be virtuous or good. You see the difference? With Dr. Jekyll, he battled evil within. But the Frankenstein monster battled evil without, on the outside. He was created with an innocent heart, but his monstrous actions were the result of living in a bad world. This is the context which I ask the question. Which monster are you more like? Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, or are you more like Frankenstein? And we're going to ask those same questions of the brothers. And so, with that in mind, let's get into a very ugly story found in Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 12. Uh, for those that weren't here last week, we've, we're looking at Joseph's story. Last week, Joseph was the loved and favoured son. Uh, his father spoiled him, gave him a coat of many colours, but of course this caused resentment among the family. And not only that, Joseph had two dreams. And in those two dreams, which he told his brothers, he had them bowing down to them. And so this is all coming to a head in today's passage. Verse 12 of chapter 37. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. In this first verse, now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks in Shechem, uh, sounds a very innocent verse, very neutral, very bland, far from it. Shechem has history, dark history. Monstrous deeds were committed by the brothers at Shechem. Four. A few years before, Jacob had been living there with his family. Tragically, Dinah, who is Jacob's only daughter, is raped. It was by the son of a local ruler, the most important and powerful man in the area. Now the son was besotted with Dinah, and he insisted his father get Dinah as his wife. Now when Dinah's brothers found out, they wanted vengeance. So when the father of the young lad comes to negotiate marriage, the brothers insist only if all the men in the town were circumcised. This was agreed upon. But when the men were still recovering, the brothers took up their swords and killed the townsmen. What monsters are these sort of lads? Jacob was one unaware of the plot. He was appalled when he found out. And the whole family was forced to leave Shechem before retribution fell. Now, some years later, the brothers are shepherding in the same area. I suppose there's some irony in one evil deed being perpetuated in the same place as another. Anyway, Joseph is going to Shechem and it doesn't bode well. The brothers had moved a little further away and eventually Joseph finds his brothers and we find this in verse 18. But they, the brothers, saw Joseph in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Now, how do you think 
the brothers recognised Joseph from a long way away. I mean, they didn't have binoculars. There was just this movement in the distance. How do you think they recognised him? He had the coat, the coat of many colours. He was wearing it. That was like, I am the favoured son and you're not, coat. It's like the, nah, 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 look at my wonderful coat. And the brothers, they saw this coat from the loved and favoured son and they were plotting his death. Now, verse 19, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. And so we can imagine Joseph walking along a path, a shepherd's path, and coming closer and closer to his brothers, not knowing that they were plotting his death. Now, we're expecting the worst. Will it be a club, a a knife, a sword? But then, verse 21, looks like there is hope for young Joseph. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to their father. Reuben suggests that they throw him into a cistern, a sort of well, so he can later rescue his brother. Now, who's Reuben in the family context? Well, Reuben is the oldest brother. And in the culture of the day, he should have been the loved and favoured son. And it looks like he's doing the right thing. It looks like he's trying to save his brother. But it's a bit hard to tell with Reuben because he's already in trouble. He's blotted his copybook. None of the family respect Reuben. He's in big trouble with his father. Does anyone know what Reuben did? It's the sort of thing you don't talk about in church, is it? Reuben slept with one of his stepmothers. Remember, Jacob had four wives. One of them was Reuben's biological mother, Leah, but he slept with one of the other wives. And his father found out, and he was hopping mad, and he removed the right of being the firstborn from Reuben. So Reuben, he's a hard man to pin down, isn't he? On the one hand, he's slept with one of his stepmothers, but on the other hand, he, he wants to rescue his brother. And his sin has come back to haunt him and will do more than once. Still, on face value, it looks good for Joseph. 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and took him and threw him into the system. Now the system was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat their meal. How callous and how uncaring. After stripping Joseph of his special clothes, they throw him into the well, then calm as you like, they sit down and eat. Probably with food that he had brought from his father, treats for his sons. And all the while, they ignore the cries of their younger brother. Many years later, as the brothers are talking about this incident, they share something that we never knew at the time. So this is Genesis 42, chapter 21. And they're looking back at this time and they say, we saw how distressed Joseph was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. So even though we're not told here, the brothers later on tell us that Joseph pleaded for his life while they calmly ate the food that he had brought them from their father. 
goodness me, what sort of monsters are we dealing with? Anyway, things uh, change because in the distance they see more movement. And this time it's a caravan, a a group of travelling merchants and traders. And as they approach Judah, one of the brothers has an idea, verse 26. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. And the brothers agreed. Oh, gets worse and worse, isn't it? What kind of monsters are we dealing with? Soon the deal is done. Money changes hand. Joseph is put in chains and just one thing remains. What will they tell their father? Verse 31. Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. And Joseph tore his clothes and his heart broke in a thousand pieces. Now there's irony here. Those of you who know your biblical stories will know that there's great irony. For when Jacob, now an old man, but when he was a young man, he deceived his father with some clothes and a goat. You remember that? Talk about generations. So... When he was a young man, he prepared a meal from the goat and gave it to his blind father and wore his older brother's clothes to fool his father, Isaac, giving him the blessing of the firstborn. So Jacob used a goat and clothes to deceive his father. And in the saddest of ironies, his own sons are doing the same to him. They are using a goat and clothes to deceive their father. Goodness me, what kind of monsters are we dealing with? 34. Then Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. In fact, he mourned for more than 20 years every day. For more than 20 years. And this is, I think, the most monstrous act of the brothers. For 20 years, they lived in the same tent as their father and they let him believe a lie. Any one of those 12, at any time in 20 years, could have come up to their dad and said, actually, Dad, Joseph, your loved and favoured son, is still alive. But for 20 years, that family secret brewed and brewed and brewed. And I think that's the worst incident in this whole story 20 years they let their father go through torment what sort of monsters are we dealing with but (laughs) but you know the God of grace, the God of mercy always has a but when it's the darkest you know the night just before the dawn when the night is the darkest God always has a but but I have a plan. And God has a wonderful plan, a glorious plan, a plan much bigger than this family. A plan that Joseph, as he's dragged off in chains, cannot see. God has a plan that his brothers, as they are hatching this plot, cannot see. God has a plan that Jacob, whose heart was torn into a thousand pieces and would not be mended, he cannot see it, but God has a plan. Jeremiah 29, 11. 
For I know, this is God speaking, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. And so where is this plan, this, this hope for Joseph and his family? Well, that plan is all tied up in the first word of verse 37. The very first word. And if you can look at it, see it. It's, this is the last verse in the chapter. And it says, meanwhile, <laughs> God's meanwhile. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar and one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. It's in this meanwhile that God is working to prosper, not to harm this family. I mean, the details will unfold over the next few weeks, but it's in this meanwhile that all of the hope, not only of this family, but of all the nation, lies. Meanwhile, God's plan continues, no matter how much Joseph, the brothers, and the father cannot see. So, how are we to make sense of this? What's our take-home And where is Christ in these series of monstrous acts? Well, the first take-home for us involves us answering the question, which monster are you? Remember, we have Jekyll and Hyde, who's wrestling with good and evil within himself, or Frankenstein's monster, who had an innocent heart and battled evil without Now, this is a really crucial question for understanding at its core what it means to be human. For if we're like Frankenstein, then any bad person can be changed into a good person by changing their environment. If we improve their health, remove poverty, give them a better education, if we combine this with counselling and large dollops of love, bad people, like these brothers, can be made good. And that's all we have to do. However, if we're like Jekyll and Hyde, where we're battling the evil within, then changing the environment will make a really positive difference. But it won't resolve the core issue of evil dominating good and that battle within us. So what is it? What monster are we most like? Well, the Bible clearly tells us that we are a Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, look at Reuben. One minute... He's stopping his brother from murdering Joseph, but earlier he'd slept with his stepmother. On the one hand, he wanted to rescue Joseph, but on the other hand, he was prepared to see his father in misery, mourning for Joseph day after day for 20 years. Wow, what a Jekyll and Hyde. And it's not just Reuben's example. The earlier passage from Romans. Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and for the wages of sin is death. The Bible makes it very clear that we are a Jekyll and Hyde monster and that the evil will win unless, unless we look to Christ. If we don't turn to Christ, eventually the Hyde that was within us will take over Jekyll, just like in that classic horror novel. And the harsh reality is without Christ, Hyde will always win. Because of the cross, because of the cross, sin is crushed, its hold over us is mortally wounded, Satan's domination is ended. Mr Hyde is dead and we are set free. 
What wonderful news. What glorious hope we have. And this is, this is the contrast with the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is never good news by itself. It always begins with the dark, bad news of how bad we were. I remember when I was a young person, and I kind of understood this and made my commitment to God, I thought the gap was about that much. (laughs) You know, as young people are, before life really knocks you around, you know, I'm not too bad, you know, I I need Jesus, but you know what it's it's like? And then you live life. (laughs) And when you live life, you think, well, goodness me. Well, goodness me. And you see the gap grow bigger and bigger between where, you know, know, Jesus is wonderful and awesome, and I'm just getting lower and lower and lower. But when you do that, then God's grace becomes more real and more wonderful because no matter how low I sink, the cross of Christ is infinite in its ability to take the most wretched sinner and bring him in or her into glory. And so we need to hear the story of Joseph's brothers. And we need to look at it and think, boy, that's grim. I mean, that's just awful. Because if God can save the brothers like Joseph then he can save you or I. When we confess the sort of monster that we are, that we battle with that Jekyll and Hyde, and Hyde will always win until we look to Christ. And that's when the glory of the good news breaks in. And that's when we understand what the gospel is. And it's a lifelong progress, because no matter how low you sink, the grace of God is more than enough to reach down and pull you by the scruff of the neck into the great love of God. So which monster are you? We're all, including myself, a Jekyll and Hyde that is in desperate need for the love of God. So that's the first take home. The first take home. What's the second take home? Well, the second take home is that we all have a meanwhile. Each of us sitting here, including myself, has a meanwhile. And what do I mean by this? God has a plan to prosper you. Not to harm you, but to bring good things into your life. Remember, Joseph, he's sold as a slavery and the boys are deceiving their father and we all think it's gloom and doom. But meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph to Egypt. God's good plan continues. So no matter how chaotic our situation, no matter how desperate our family or finances or health, God has a meanwhile for us. No matter how lonely, how depressed, how fearful you are for the future, no matter how many unanswered prayers lay scattered on the floor and discouragements weigh heavily on your shoulders, God has a meanwhile for you. Like Joseph, his brothers and fathers, often we cannot see God's plan to prosper us, not to harm us. And so... We need to cling to Christ in the same way that Joseph had no idea that God had this amazing plan for his life. There are times when our life is so dark that we have no idea that he has amazing plans for us. Four, like Joseph, Jesus was sent to his brothers by a father who cared. Jesus was the loved and favoured son whose brothers, that's the Jewish folk, hated. And they plotted to kill him. How many times does it say in the Gospels that the Jewish leaders plotted to kill Jesus? Just like the brothers plotted to kill Joseph. In fact, we read in John, 
chapter 1, verse 10, he was in the world, Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. In the same way that Joseph came to his brothers his own and they did not receive him, so Jesus came to the world and they did not receive him. And not only this, and they, but they plotted to kill him and they were spiteful to Christ even in his death. Remember the brothers callously ignoring Joseph's cries from the pit while they quite happily had a meal? Well, on Calvary, those that were around the cross callously ignored Jesus. As he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But this was a different cry. Joseph was crying out for his life, but Jesus, no, he was obedient to the Father. He was not crying out to be saved. The cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was a cry of a heart separated from his Father. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's what happened when Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For every sin that we ever commit or will commit was laid on Christ. Why? So that in Christ, in him, we might become right with God, the righteousness of God. Christ carried the weight of humanity, sin, rebellion and hate. God turned his back on his only son. And the soldiers gambled and the onlookers mocked. And then all fell silent. And Jesus cried, it is finished, and gave up his last breath. But it's this cry, he has finished, is God's meanwhile. When Jesus said, it is finished, God was saying, meanwhile. For meanwhile, as the temple curtain split in two, and as the earth quaked and the thunder rumbled, God's plan was fulfilled. Satan is vanquished, disarmed and dethroned, Sin's iron grip is loosened and the darkness of the grave gave way to the lightness of God's glorious light. For on that first Easter Sunday, the heavens and the earth, yes, every star in the night sky, every angel before the heavenly throne, every demon in the pit of hell saw the tomb was empty. And God's great meanwhile, his great plan had come about. This was the plan that Joseph finally saw towards the end of his life. I mean, Joseph didn't see it as he was being carried off to Egypt and sold into slavery. But if we fast forward some 30 years in the future, when when Jacob finally passes away and his brothers are gathered around him, then this is what Joseph said, said to his brothers, finally reconciled, you intended to harm me. And he's thinking back to that time when he was sold into slavery. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. That's the great meanwhile, the saving of many lives. Today God calls each of us to be part of his great plan, his great meanwhile, to be involved in that picture that is bigger than ourselves and our families and our circumstances. But also he has a personal meanwhile for you, plan to prosper you and plan to bring good into your life. Let's pray.